You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. I wonder how many of us can remember a moment in life in which we found ourselves in utter hopelessness. I'll give you a minute. For some, it may be more recent than others. For many, it may be further back. Some may struggle to find a moment exactly like that. Sometimes those moments are a long time coming. And it's that sense of just ongoing challenge and difficulty or opposition or adverse circumstances that just the ongoing time after time after time, weeks, weeks, months, even years where we feel like there's no way out of the current situation and we find ourselves in this state of hopelessness. For others, it may come in a moment. A diagnosis you weren't expecting, the death of one you love, the end of a marriage, the loss of a job, what do I do now? We probably don't have to look very far to find a moment like that in our lives. And if not in ours, perhaps in someone we know and someone we love. And if we can find a moment like that, And consider the experience, we're probably beginning to step into the experiences of this man that we meet in Acts chapter 3, a crippled beggar. I also wonder how many of us, in taking those moments or seasons or extended periods even of just hopelessness. How many of us in that moment can remember and give thanks for a deep experience of the presence of Jesus? I wonder if we can recall how He met us in that place of sorrow. How He touched us in that place of brokenness. How He healed a place of sickness or ministered to a place of sorrow. And if we can, remember His presence in that way. Again, we will begin to be able to identify with this man that we meet in Acts chapter 3. And as we take His experience and our experience, and bring them together. And as we see how Jesus touches him in his place of brokenness, and how perhaps Jesus has touched us in our places of, of, of sorrow and brokenness, and, and maybe for some of us we have a place like that, and we don't feel like Jesus has touched it yet, but we, we want him to, and we long for him to, and as we kind of take these different experiences that we have and that Scripture tells us about and draw them together, perhaps we can begin to see that Jesus 
makes our most hopeless moments occasions for His most beautiful work. I think that's what Luke wants us to pick up. That in this new season, after the Spirit has come, a new age has dawned, things have changed. And Jesus is at work in a different, deeper, new, fresh way to touch the places of abject hopelessness in the lives of His people and minister His most beautiful healing presence. How does Luke make that point? How does he invite us to trust Jesus in this way? He tells us about a cripple. A beggar. The disease that's crippled him or the condition, whatever it is, we don't get a lot of details, is congenital. It's been this way since birth. And maybe you can kind of think back or imagine with me what it might have been like for this man who's a child to need to be carried everywhere he went. Probably a sickly kid. Perhaps his parents wondered if he would even live to adulthood. Maybe they managed for a little while to cobble together some crutches and he could kind of drag himself around a little bit. But even if that happened, it didn't last. Because in this scene in the narrative, his friends actually carry him to the place where he lay. Luke wants us to see just this, this sense of abject hopelessness. It's, it's emphasized with the length of his illness or the length of his handicap over 40 years. He's in his 40s. And he's never been able to get around on his own. Multiple times Luke points out how people are doing things for him. A man lame from birth was being carried in. He can't get himself there if he's going to beg for alms and spare change by the gate of the church. He needs some friends to help him get there because he can't do it himself. He was carried in. People would lay him daily. They put him in place at the gate of the temple. The only thing he could do for himself was beg. And that's not probably not a fun place to be. So he's had this 40 plus year infirmity and he can't get himself around and all he can do, all he can do is throw himself on the charity of others. What's Luke's, what's the impression the author Luke wants us to take? This guy is without hope. Decade after decade with no change and no way out. He has no power. He has no resources. At least he has a few friends. But otherwise, he's got nothing.
the place where he lay is called the beautiful gate. Historians tell us that this was probably the main entrance to the temple on the east side. There was a gate there that was renowned across the Roman Empire. One first century historian said that this particular gate, 75 feet tall, made out of Corinthian brass, was even more brilliant than the ones overlaid with silver and gold. The beautiful gate, it was called. And that's where he lay. And you get this remarkable contrast, don't you? Beautiful architecture, the place of worship, the place of God's presence, in contrast to a man with no hope. He can't even get into the temple. In fact, we're told after he's healed in just a few moments, he goes into the temple, and the implication again is sort of perhaps maybe because of his handicap, they wouldn't even let him in. We know in the Old Testament that priests who are handicapped couldn't serve as priests, and there were some traditions in Judaism that would say even handicapped persons can't go into the temple to worship because we don't want to profane the sanctuary. And so here's this guy who can't do anything for himself, who's cut off from the worship of his God, and who only survives on the charity of others, laying before a gate that probably cost far more than he's ever had in to his own in his lifetime. Hopelessness laying before beauty. And it's this place, and I think it's on purpose. <laughs> it's this place that Luke identifies and tells us that this is where Peter and John encounter this man. And I think he's wanting to, I mean, sure, he probably could have picked a variety of surprising things to, to give us a sense of what this, this empowerment the disciples had received looked like. But he chooses this, and he chooses this location. And he emphasizes this beautiful gate, and he emphasizes this man's just sorrow and hopelessness, and that deep, striking contrast, because I think Luke wants us to begin to see how the empowerment that comes through the Holy Spirit on Jesus' behalf, that Jesus, the reigning Lord over all things, that He desires to take broken, hopeless people and do beautiful things in their lives. And so Luke tells us about this broken man laying in front of this beautiful gate. And the thing that's about to happen to him will so far exceed the beauty of the place. The beauty of the thing that's about to happen to him. The beauty of the work of Christ in his life will so far exceed the beauty of the location that the thing people remember is how this man was restored. So he asks Peter and John for money. And they respond, look at us. We don't have anything. No silver, no gold. But we do have one thing. We have Jesus. And they speak to him 
and command him in the name of Jesus to stand up and walk. Now you remember, you may remember that these guys have had a variety of experiences and situations like this. If you read back into the Gospels, you know the disciples were there when Jesus was taking not just lame people, but dead people and raising them to new life. You may remember that the disciples got sent out by Jesus and they were able to do some of these kind of surprising signs and wonders and it would go well. You may also remember that occasionally they would get off onto their own agendas and preferences and, hey, we're the ones who are (laughs) doing the miracles here and they would find themselves unable to do it. Remember that guy whose son was possessed by a demon and he comes to Jesus and he's a little bit miffed because the disciples can't cast the demon out of his kid that's trying to kill his kid. Why can't we do it? So these guys have been through quite a journey, haven't they? And here they are at this gate, the beautiful gate, with this man who is unwell, who is broken, and they tell him with full confidence in the power of Christ through his Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. Peter reaches with his right hand, takes the man, and instantly those legs that had never felt the weight of that body were strong. And he didn't just get up, we're told, he leapt. And in that moment, can you just just take a minute, we've already been working to identify what are the places of hopelessness and in that place for this guy to be touched by the apostles on Jesus behalf to be restored to be healed to be made whole not just to sort of stumble up and and pull himself up on the gate that was there and maybe some people but he is instantly over the top made well Back in Acts chapter 2, we're told that the Spirit would empower the disciples for ministry. Now we see that that was indeed true. It's been demonstrated. The Spirit, on Christ's behalf, is empowering them for ministry. And in that moment, Jesus takes this man from hopelessness to wholeness. Peter's going to say later on that Jesus has given him perfect health. I'm old enough now to know perfect health would be really nice. (laughs) Jesus has given him perfect health. Well, people go crazy, as you can imagine. It's surprising. Oftentimes when the Lord Jesus Christ does beautiful things, it does indeed attract attention. And so Peter does what Peter does. He jumps up and starts preaching. He's developing a bit of a a pattern to his life, and he's probably going to get a reputation before too long. Surprising things happen, and Peter starts preaching and explaining, because you can imagine the sorts of things that were being said. Verse 11, the man clings to Peter and John. The people run together to them in the portico, often called Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico. And they're utterly astonished. And Peter addressed the people. You Israelites, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we'd made him walk? He's saying, this is not about 
Peter and John. There's something else going on. There's a bigger picture taking place. Why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our ancestors has glorified his servant Jesus. So he wants to be absolutely crystal clear that this beautiful work, this healing, this gracious act of God in Christ through the Spirit is not of human origin, but from Jesus, from God. The God who called Abraham and said, I'm going to use your family to bless every family in the world is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Now things get a little bit rough here. Peter declares that God has glorified Jesus. And remember, when he talks about glorifying Jesus, he's talking about the ascension, remember Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascends to the throne of heaven. He's not going off to a distant place. He's going to like mission control. And from his glorified, exalted position, he is administering his mission to Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. And so God raised Jesus, glorified Jesus. And then Peter slides into the, who, by the way, you condemned to death. He proclaims the resurrection and glorification of Jesus and then reminds his hearers that even though Pilate was going to let Jesus go, they insisted on mob justice and had Jesus crucified. Just listen to the way he puts this. You rejected the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given him this perfect health. In your presence. And so, Peter doesn't mince words when it comes to the sins of his people. He's not going to let them off scot-free. He's not even willing to compromise a little bit on this. You rejected him. You handed him over. You insisted. Despite his holiness, despite his righteousness, despite the fact that he was a man attested by God. And you almost get the sense that (laughs) kind of the physical, emotional, psychological hopelessness that this man experienced that moved from hopelessness to wholeness, that Peter is, 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 is wanting those who hear him to begin to discover their own spiritual hopelessness. Like, you are standing in opposition to God. And that's not a good place to be. He wants them to see, and his proclamation functions to help them to see, that apart from God's grace, they stand in abject hopelessness. Even to the point, later on, where he will say, everyone who does not listen to Jesus will be utterly rooted out of the people. Like his mess, Peter's message to his peers is that being a part of Abraham's family isn't enough. Everything 
rides on what you do with Jesus. Everything rides on what you do with Jesus. Your lineage, your membership in this family is not enough. If you don't attend to the words of the prophet that Moses spoke of, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord Christ. The text says you'll be rooted out. And so you can see where Peter, just as Luke was emphasizing the hopelessness, physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual hopelessness of the man by the gate, Peter is emphasizing the abject hopelessness of the crowds in Jerusalem. But we know, they don't know this yet, but we know it, that when hopeless situations are magnified, Jesus makes them occasions to do his beautiful work. And then Peter gives them the good news. And now, friends, verse 17 I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. And in this way, God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, and that his Messiah would suffer. Repent, therefore. Turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed for you, that is Jesus, who must remain in heaven, mission control, until the time of universal restoration. We'll talk about that in a minute. For now, hear what he says. You rejected the Messiah. God is gracious. You are broken, damaged, darkened rebels. God desires to heal and restore. Your sin is ugly. God wants to work beautifully in your life. Repent, therefore, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. Beautiful work number one, sins are forgiven. Not just forgiven, wiped out. Jesus wants to deal with the sins of his people because it is sin that keeps us from experiencing his best. Sometimes when we get angry and we're hurt, we can feel that anger just kind of welling. It starts right about here and kind of works its way up to here until it's all over the place, doesn't it? And in those moments, right, things can get ugly very quickly. And yet, at that moment, Jesus has an occasion to do some of his most beautiful work, doesn't he? I have this conversation with my, with my kids sometimes. You can literally feel sin in your chest. <laughs> that thing, that frustration, that hardness, that you feel it. It's there. It's not pretty. Jesus 
wants to save you from that. That's what I tell them. He wants to take that ugliness that is so hard-hearted set against him, and he wants to make it beautiful in every way. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that times of refreshing may come. I imagine that the lame man was probably sitting aside listening to Peter saying, I know what he's talking about. This day, for the first time in my life, I know what refreshing feels like. My legs are strong. God has touched my life. He's taken me from brokenness to wholeness. From sorrow to beauty. And Peter wants the masses to see that Jesus has come to do that in each of us. That Jesus has come to make our most hopeless moments occasions for his most beautiful work. So whatever that moment, that moment or season that you kind of had in your mind when we first raised the question a few minutes ago. That is an occasion for the Lord Jesus Christ to do something beautiful. He wants to touch your broken places and make them whole. Now, you may be thinking, well, why doesn't he, you know, do a miracle like he did for this guy? And a lot of times when we read texts like that, that's the question that comes up, isn't it? Signs and wonders. Why don't we see miracles the same way? And we do hear testimony from different places in different parts of the world where very surprising healings or things happen. John Wesley left a story of a time where he prayed for somebody who was dead and the guy came back to life before too long. So even in Methodism, you still get signs and wonders sometimes. There's a couple things to just kind of reflect on from the text of why this isn't, you know, like people get sick and bad things happen and we pray for a miracle and it doesn't always happen and probably it usually doesn't. And so we struggle to kind of like take the text and take our experience and like, how does this work? How does it fit? Why doesn't Jesus step in and do something? And, and maybe those places of hopelessness are amplified because we think Jesus ought to do something and he's not. We kind of feel that frustration at him. He's okay. He's a big boy. He can handle it. But we feel it. Why doesn't he do something? And I think our expectations, maybe at one level, aren't what they should be. For one thing, Luke gives us some explanation about what the signs and wonders are all about. In chapter 2, Peter says in his sermon that Jesus was attested by God through signs and wonders. All right, so there's Jesus, who's the Messiah, and you know he's God's anointed Messiah because of the signs and wonders. You don't get to say that about any of the rest of us, do you? 
right? So whatever the signs and wonders Jesus is doing, I'm not saying we shouldn't expect God to do surprising things, but I am saying the sorts of things Jesus was doing are not typical. God was revealing himself in a new way in Jesus, and that revelation was confirmed through surprising signs and wonders, is the way the text talks. And the apostles participate in that. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, all came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. Again, there's a new revelation. The Spirit of God has come. Right? Jesus has come, new revelation of God, signs and wonders. Holy Spirit comes, new revelation of God, signs and wonders. And so the pattern here is that when God does new things, like when He's revealing Himself in new ways, He does these miraculous things that you don't typically see as evidence or a witness or attestation or confirmation that what you see is actually from him and not somewhere else. And it's not like everybody who gets the Spirit is running around healing folks all of a sudden, are they? If they did, there wouldn't be any beggars left in Jerusalem. This is like a one-off kind of deal here. It happens more times as it goes along. Things happen. But the apostles are uniquely empowered by God in these instances to do these spectacular works as evidence that the Spirit coming on Pentecost is legit. That it's real. And so at one level, because God hasn't, like there aren't any more persons of the Trinity to show up. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We got like, that's done. And so we don't expect another season like this. Doesn't mean God never works in surprising ways. Doesn't mean we don't believe in miracles. We do. It just means that when someone in Africa gets healed, or someone down the road, it's not functioning the same way as it did in the Bible. It's functioning different. And here, it's functioning to reveal the way God has come in Christ and the Spirit to take physical and spiritual brokenness and work beautiful grace into it. That's what's, hap that, like, that's what's happening here. Show me your most hopeless moment, <laughs> Luke wants to say. And I'll show you a place where Jesus does his most beautiful work. And I think I want to say that to you today. Show me your most hopeless moment. And I'll show you an occasion for Jesus to do his most beautiful work. The apostles are engaged in ministry that touches every aspect of human life. We mess that up sometimes. Some traditions say, well, we got to care for people's physical needs. And they do so much physical care, they often forget to talk about the gospel. And other traditions say, well, your spirit, saving your soul is the real thing, so we're going to preach the gospel, and we're not too worried about helping you get a meal tonight. But what you get with these apostles is Jesus coming to minister to brokenness at every level. Like physical, social life. They don't say, you know, 
we're not worried about the fact that you can't walk because your real need is spiritual. Nobody says that here. They restore his body. And nobody says, well, the real need is the gospel, so you just lay there while I preach to you. But at the same time, they don't say, well, we're going to meet your needs, but we don't want to like, it's kind of depressing if we talk about sin too much. Like Peter's not worried about that, is he? So he holds these two things together. He cares for people. He cares for their bodies. He cares for their poverty. He cares for their need. He cares for their, their social location. He, he meets them in the place of brokenness and ugliness and sorrow. And he does it at every level. Physical, emotional, psychological, spiritual, soul, body, whole self. Like there is no aspect of our being that is beyond the reach of His grace. He wants to touch our mind. He wants to touch our will. He wants to touch our emotions. He wants to touch all of us so that our whole self, our whole being, everything He's made, every aspect of our lives that He's made, every dimension of our humanity can be oriented 100% towards His name and His glory and His grace and His purposes in the world, His mission, His kingdom. This is the way of the kingdom. This is the way. This is, brothers and sisters, this is Jesus touching every dark, broken, painful, dying moment and spot in my life and saying, I'm going to make it lovely. Nothing is out of my reach. Nothing is out of His reach. Nothing in your life Nothing that is out of his reach. No hard heart, no rebellion, no sin, no illness, no no, no emotional trauma, no abuse, no guilt, no shame, no condemnation, no sinful past. There is nothing in your life, in your humanity or mine that is beyond the reach of his perfect love. Nothing. He touches this guy at every level. And Peter says, in your presence, right in front of your faces. That's how I would translate it. Jesus has given him perfect help. Perfect. He's touched every aspect of his being. And we get this vision of wholeness that anticipates what Peter calls universal restoration. You know what universal restoration is? You got a theology of that? It's in the Bible. What in the world is he doing? Like, when is the last time you heard a sermon entitled Universal Restoration? Maybe I should have titled this one that. Like, I haven't heard a lot of preaching on that. It doesn't come up, but look, here's Peter, climax of this whole sermon, day after Pentecost, or sometime after Pentecost. First major salvation miracle thing happening. And Peter starts talking about how God keeps his promises. And Peter starts talking about God raised Jesus from the dead. And Peter starts talking about how the citizens of Jerusalem handed Jesus over sinfully and calls him to repentance. And the whole thing is driving at Jesus coming back a second time, remaining in heaven until then. And that time is called universal restoration. Anybody need some restoration in your life? Anybody need some restoration in the world? 
I'd encourage you to go, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, to watch the news, but it's that bad, and I don't want to encourage you to watch the news. Troops at borders. Political conflict. Continuing pandemic implications. The world is consistently and constantly changing, and it's hard. And because the world is changing, the church that is in mission to the world adapts. Not easy, often hard, but we can't be afraid of hard things. But there is a world, and it often feels like it's just coming apart at the seams. The gospel, friends, points us at a day when Jesus comes back and takes everything He has made from the continents to the cosmos, mountains to Milky Way, the galaxy, not the candy bar, and restores it completely. New creation, resurrection of the body, life everlasting. That's where this thing is driving. And the mission of the church, you've got to see this. We've got to see this because if we don't know where we're going, we're going to go in the wrong direction. You going on a trip? What do you do? Like we used to have to print, like you used to have to get an atlas to figure out where you were going, right? I've seen a few of those. And then when I was in college, you had those, you print out 15 different sheets of directions off the internet and they think looking at a phone is bad and you're trying to get through like a map quest directions. If you didn't have a wreck doing that, it's a mess. Now you can just hey, Siri, navigate to wherever, and you've got it, and you don't even have to touch it, you just talk to it. But you've got to know where you're going, don't you? If you don't know where you're going, how do you get there? And Peter wants the citizens of Jerusalem to know, and Luke records it because he wants us to know that this project, this mission, this way of the kingdom is driving forward to one day, one glorious day, one spectacular day, when Jesus, King of heaven, Lord of earth, name above every name, descends and the trump will sound and the angel voices will shout and the dead in Christ will rise and all things will be made new and creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and every place of hopelessness and brokenness and sorrow will be made beautiful and lovely and saturated with His grace because it's saturated with His presence. That's where this project is going. And every decision that is made, and every strategy that is conceived, and every judgment that we consider is made to that end. Because that's what Jesus has called us to. And this healing, this guy, we don't even, like, we don't even know what his name is, but his life transformation is like one little signpost that says this is what restoration looks like. You see these broken legs, they don't work. Boom! This is what restoration looks like. You see your sinful hearts? Repent. Trust Jesus. This is what restoration looks like. Now you take that and you magnify it to the world with socio-political hardships and economies and wars and rumors of wars and all these things. You magnify it to the universe, to everything that is in bondage to decay, and this is what restoration looks like. 
This is what restoration looks like. That's our job, people. It's our job to tell the world, this is what restoration looks like. This is what wholeness looks like. This is what sorrow to joy looks like. This is what ugly to beauty looks like. And that means, that means we got to bring our most hopeless places and moments and seasons to Jesus so that He can do His most beautiful work. And when He does, it says to each of us, when Jesus takes those broken places and does His beautiful work, it says to, each, to, one, to, one, to one another and to the world, this is a glimpse of what's coming for everything you see. Universal restoration. The only question for us, the only question for us is where are the places in our lives that He hasn't gotten to yet? What's He calling me to do? And I've you know what this feels like. Jesus, hey, I got something for you. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't even know what it is yet, and I don't know about it. Like, we hold him at arm's length, don't we? He says, here's a pathway. Here's my best for you. Here's the mission. Here are my purposes. Here's my calling. Yes, it will take risk. Yes, it will take sacrifice. No, it isn't safe as you consider safety. But the real safe place is right in the heart of Jesus' purposes. The least risky place is right in the heart of the purposes of God in Christ. And so if He can take those places in our hearts that are kind of, ah, I just don't want to go there yet. I don't want to go there, Jesus. I'm not ready for that. I don't want that. I like this. I like this. This is easier. This is my preference. This is where I am. I don't want you to touch that relationship. I don't want you to touch that, that part of my life. Like, no. Then we're not pointing, like, if it's no to Jesus... then we're not showing the world what universal refreshment looks like. Restoration. So the question for all of us, friends, and it could be different for every person in the room. Where am I holding Jesus at arm's length? Where am I saying no? Where are the places in my, in my life where it's anything yet, less than yes? Sometimes it's because we had some experience that made it difficult for us to trust Him. Other times it's because we're holding on to some, something that we don't want to yield to Him. It's just, it varies as many, as, as many people as there are. It works its way out differently. The common issue, the common question, whether you are in sixth grade or 60 years old, earlier, later, anywhere in between, the common question is, does Jesus have my whole heart? And if he does, the word is beauty. And if he does, the direction 
is new creation. If he can make me new, he can make anything new. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.